the Lord has uh, laid a message on my heart to bring with you tonight. And um, I believe the Spirit of God is speaking an urgent message to the church in this time. And before going too much farther into all of that, I just I want to start this, this word off. The Lord has a calling upon the life of every single Christian to take the kingdom. Do you realize that that's true of your life because of where you stand? I'm going to say that a second time because somebody should start getting excited about this reality. The Lord has a calling upon the life of every single Christian, which would include you, the person sitting in your chair, amen, has a calling upon the life of every single Christian to take the kingdom of heaven. And to that end, the Lord will oftentimes give to us promises. Very often, in fact, as the Lord calls us to a kingdom assignment, He will give us promises by which we can know with certainty that God will indeed, without fail, accomplish through us what He has assigned to us. There's a lot of examples of this in the Word of God. A lot of examples of God giving promises, at times miraculous promises, to back up the validity of a kingdom calling. One of them would certainly be the story of Joshua chapter 3, verses 10 and following, which gives to us the account of the children of Israel right before they crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land for the very first time. And in that moment, Joshua, son of Nun, if you remember, stood up before the whole congregation of Israel and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what he said. He said, here is how you shall know, O Israel, that the living God is among you and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you all the peoples of the land. The Canaanites the Hivites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. And then he said, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan are going to be cut off from flowing. That is a bold statement. Think about that for a moment. I mean, essentially what he was saying is that the miraculous promise, O Israel, that you will know that the living God will cause you to have power to without fail drive out from before you all the peoples of the land is that he is going to supernaturally stop a river from flowing. <laughs> Whoa! And that is a powerful, miraculous sign to back up a really powerful kingdom promise. Amen? And you know, as the children of Israel crossed over into the promised land, after that promise became fulfilled, they found that God was indeed with them, just as he had said that he would be. Do you know what it says in Joshua chapter 23, verse 10? It says that, get this, each man in Israel's army had the ability to supernaturally overpower 1,000 Canaanites. Put that into perspective a minute. The kind of superhuman might that the Bible says that Samson became endued with when he took up a donkey's jawbone and slew 1,000 Philistines, the Bible says that something, something like, something comparable to that sort of superhuman might rested upon each man in Israel's army as they warred with the inhabitants of Canaan. So clearly, 
Obviously, (laughs) the hand of God was with his people, giving them power to take the kingdom. Why? Because the Lord has a calling upon the life of every Christian to take the kingdom. But you know, just one generation after Joshua's time, in the book of Judges, which is going to be the subject for tonight's message, we find a very strange statement recorded for us in the third chapter, beginning with the fifth verse. Judges 3.5 says, and I'm paraphrasing this, it says, Now to this day, the children of Israel live among the Canaanites. The Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. How do you like that? Very same people that God had sworn previously through Joshua that he would, quote, without fail, drive out from before them are still living in the land with them a hundred years later. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. Can you relate to any of this at all? Has God ever spoken a kingdom promise to you? Maybe the Lord said to you, you're going to be a great pastor or a teacher or a leader in the body of Christ. Maybe he said to you, you're going to be an effective evangelist. Maybe he told you that your small group would impact your cities. Maybe he said that you would be an exhorter in the house of God. Maybe the Lord told you that you would be a prophet to the nations or that you would be a missionary or that you would plant churches all over the world. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about. Has God ever spoken a kingdom promise to you. Then backed it up with a miraculous sign, only to leave you 20 years later wondering, where in the world is God? Well, let me tell you something. There was a very specific reason why that exact thing was happening to the children of Israel in the book of of Judges. And so tonight I want to talk about that with you. But before we really launch into this message... For the sake of fairness, I'm going to offer you men a brief disclaimer. All right? You ready? Here it is. The reason the children of Israel had no authority to take the kingdom in their day just could be different from the reason that you right now lack the authority that you need to take the kingdom in the places that God has called you. But you know what? Whatever the case, even if this message does not directly speak into your current season in God, Nevertheless, the lesson that we are going to find here in tonight's message is a lesson that is worth your learning. Because it is a lesson which is irrelevant to no one in the church. And that lesson is this, that when we as God's people break covenant with the Lord, we lose the authority in the supernatural that we need to take the kingdom of God in the way that he's called us to. I'm going to say this one more time. This, this time I'm going to get a bit more personal. When you, fellow brother, break covenant with the Lord by disobeying Him, you lose the authority in the Spirit that you need to take the kingdom in the way that God has called you to. And let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's just say for the sake of argument that after tonight's meeting, one of you decides you're just going to speed all the way home just for the sheer fun of it. Well, let me tell you something. That little thing, though it seemed fun at the time, and though you thought that God was winking, and you thought that was kind of cute, I'm telling you something, that little incident right there hinders your authority in the Spirit to take the kingdom in the way that God has called you to. Let me just give you a Bible verse to back up what I'm talking about. Just write down the reference, look it up later. 
Judges chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It tells us that when the children of Israel broke covenant with the Lord, that God came to them and he said, because you have transgressed my covenant, I will no longer drive out the nations before you. In other words, because you've disobeyed me, I'm not going to build the kingdom for you anymore. And one of the things that starts to happen in seasons like this in our lives, one of the first things that starts to take place is that the power of God begins to vanish from our lives. We don't see signs and wonders very often in seasons like this. Why? Because the evidence, the supernatural evidence of the presence and the power and the kingdom of God amongst us begins to vanish from our lives. And we're going to see this real clear in tonight's message. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn there now to the book of Judges, chapter 2. We're going to begin with the 10th verse. And once you get there, let's just pray one more time. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here tonight to convict our hearts, God. Lord, that you would confirm the word that's going to go forth right now. Lord, you have a call for each and every one of us. I pray that tonight, for those that are being hindered by this, that they would step it into a new way, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are you there? Judges chapter 2, beginning with the 10th verse. Just say amen if you're there. All right. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Pause. What generation is this talking about? Generation of Joshua. So after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Listen, it says, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Problem number one. They didn't know him. So, verse 11, it says, then the children of Israel began to do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they began to serve the Baals. Now pause, look up at me for a minute. The Baals. The Baals were the false gods of the Canaanite peoples whom they worshipped. And because of this worship of false gods, the whole of the land of Canaan was just filled with idols. And so God had called the children of Israel to go and to dispossess the people of the land and to destroy and burn all their idols with fire. But as we're going to see, they failed to do this. And this is what led them to their predicament that we're finding them in tonight. Now hear me. Lest we as Western Christians, living over 3,000 years after the time of Joshua, be tempted to falsely believe that we don't have a problem with idolatry. You know, because we're like more sophisticated than they were back then. Lest we think that, let me explain something to you about the nature of idolatry, okay? Idolatry is not a rare sin of a few tribal groups off on some distant island somewhere. Idolatry is a universal problem to humanity. In fact, the very first two of God's Ten Commandments deal specifically with the issue of idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Amen? And in fact, much of the sin that is going on in the world today has come about because of idolatry. Example. A man who cheats on his taxes has made money his God. That's why he cheated. 
or the man that becomes unfaithful to his spouse has done so because he's made personal fulfillment his God. That's why he becomes unfaithful. Now, there are a lot of examples that we could give here which would look a lot like this, but my point is that in all cases, the foundational principle is really the same. That idolatry is the result of something becoming more important to us than God. And the way that Christians go about spotting idolatry in the church begins with understanding a foundational point that Jesus made about idolatry in His famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing this again, He said that no one can love two masters. <laughs> Nobody can love two masters. Now there's a lot there in that sentence. And I just want to camp here for a minute if we can and just unpack that a little bit. Can we interact with each other tonight? Some of you got that, oh, just kind of look in your eyes. You're just, <laughs> can we do that? Can we interact tonight? All right. So let's start with something basic. As Christians, we all know that love is not simply an emotion. Amen? Love is an action. So that means that when Jesus said nobody can love two masters, He wasn't talking about an emotion. He was talking about an action. Why? Because love is an action. And because love is an action, there are certain activities that are contained in love without which love would no longer be love. For example... Love would no longer be love if it did not also include the activity of cherishing. Isn't that right? Husband who does not cherish his wife does not in fact love her. Isn't that true? Nor would love any longer be love if it did not also include the activity of delighting. Amen? Moreover, love would no longer be love if it did not also include the activity of enjoying. Aren't all these things true? Now, because this is the case, because all of those activities are contained in love, because of that, then we are unlikely to understand the full meaning of what Jesus was talking about unless we also hear it like this. Now, when Jesus said, no one can love two masters, He also meant to say that no one can cherish two masters. And then when Jesus said, no one can love two masters, He also meant to say that no one can delight in two masters. And then when Jesus said no one can love two masters, He also meant to say that no one can enjoy two masters. Therefore, to enjoy anything which God has forbidden for me to enjoy is idolatry. And any sin that you commit because you enjoy that sin, that is idolatry. Why? Because to inwardly enjoy anything which God has said thou shalt not enjoy is the same thing as covetousness. And Paul said in Colossians 3, 5 that all covetousness is idolatry. So let me repeat this one more time. Any sin that you commit because you enjoy that sin, that is idolatry. Now with that definition firmly fixed in our minds, I'm going to draw a further distinction. And that is this. And I would, I would really be remiss not to point this out. There is a real difference between idolatry 
and a person who is an idolater. See, idolatry is what we just described. By that definition, every single person in this room, amen, has performed an idolatrous act at some point in your life. And because of that, then you, just like me, are desperately in need of the mercy and grace of God that he freely offers us at the cross. Isn't that right? Let's face it. If it wasn't for the cross, covenant with the Lord becomes a pipe dream. But now listen to what I'm saying tonight. An idolater is a person who takes idolatry a step further. An idolater is a person who continually, habitually commits a sin because they enjoy that sin. Listen to me tonight. If the reason that you continually, habitually commit the sin that you commit, if the reason for that is because you enjoy that sin, you are an idolater. And you're breaking covenant with God. Now, I'm not saying this to you tonight to hurt you. I'm saying it tonight to heal you. See, because I know that there are people in this room. It doesn't take a word from God to figure out that there are people in this room and you've given yourself as a Christian into an idolatrous lifestyle. And so the reason that I'm saying this to you tonight is so that you become convicted by the Spirit of God and step into freedom. But, you know, even as you say something like this, I can only imagine what a person's thinking when they're hearing this for the first time. Ben, are you seriously living on the same planet as the rest of us? Come on, man. The only reason I commit the sin that I commit is because I enjoy it. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't commit it. Listen, I understand that kind of reasoning because I've believed that way before. But we also need to hear what the Word of God says tonight. Because it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. And then farther down in verse 6, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Why? Because if you keep on sinning, you're making a practice of sin. You're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're proving that you have an allegiance to something that's not God, and you've become an idolater. And no one who is in Christ can be an idolater. If you're an idolater, you're not in the faith. Uh, can I just share this with you? I'll never forget the time when the Lord came to me and He began to deal with me in ways that I, and this is after my conversion, ways that I was living as an idolater while at the same time trying to claim allegiance to Jesus. And it was specifically in the area of television, film, media, movies, and the Holy Spirit came to me, and this is what he said. He said, Ben, did you ever seriously entertain the thought of committing adultery? I just, Lord, is this a trick question? No, I would never seriously entertain the thought of, I would never entertain that thought. I would never do that, Lord. And the Lord came to me a second time. And then he said, well, then why would you seek to be entertained by adultery? Then he came to me a second time and he said, Ben, would you ever seriously entertain the thought of performing witchcraft? And again, I said, no, Lord, I would never entertain that thought. And then he said to me, then why would you seek to be entertained by witchcraft? 
Then the Lord spoke two words to me. And when he spoke these two words, it changed my life forever. I've never thought the same ever since. He just said to me, you hypocrite. By your own admission, you would never entertain the thought of doing those, of actually performing those things. And yet you turn right around and become entertained by them. You hypocrite. And some of you, you're listening to this, you're saying, devil. God would never talk to me like that. He doesn't talk to me like that. He only speaks in smooth words. Listen, if you need proof that God talks this way to his people, you need to look no farther than Jesus. Because he was all about exposing false devotion to him. That was rooted, rooted in nothing but religion. And he would come and he would say to people, you hypocrite. And you know the reason why this is so important for us to understand tonight? Because do you know what God does with an idolater? When they stand before him in eternity? You know what the Bible says God does with idolaters? You ever read Revelation 21.8? It says that all idolaters will find their portion in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's what God does with them. He just picks them right up and He throws them into hell. Listen, Jesus said in Matthew 7 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, is going to enter heaven. This is one of the reasons why. Because there's a lot of people that think either because they've heard it implicitly or explicitly spoken from a pulpit somewhere, that you can be struggling slash enjoying sin while living as a Christian. And that's just simply not true. I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit has been gripping my heart in more recent times on this issue. I was in a moment of prayer and I was talking to the Lord about this as He was beginning to show me the level of mixture that we're walking into the church right now. And I was on my knees and the Holy Spirit said, can I show you just a little bit of my burden just for your nation alone? Can I show you that? Here's, here's just a little taste. It was about for a split second. I just started to scream at the top of my lungs and said, No, Lord, I can't take this. Please don't show me your burden for America right now because we're stuck in idolatry. So I couldn't handle it. Now, as I'm saying this to you tonight, I, I, I can only imagine there's got to be people in this room you're like shocked and surprised. You're like, what? I'll tell you something. What shocked me the most as I was putting together this message was to discover, listen to what I'm going to say now, to discover that God actually behaves differently towards idolaters in this life than he does in eternity. Did you know that? Did you know that the Bible says that God deals differently with idolaters in this life than he does when they stand before him in glory? And when I show you what I'm going to show you tonight in the book of Judges, you're going to get a picture of the long-suffering and the patience and the mercy of God towards idolaters, and it's going to surprise you. 
So before we jump back into the story, let's remind ourselves of what we're talking about here. Okay, the children of Israel had gone to the land of Canaan. They were supposed to dispossess the people, destroy all their idols. That was their directions, right? But then they began to dive headlong into it. The people of God began to find pleasure and enjoyment and delight. They were cherishing all the same things that the world cherishes. In other words, the pleasure power of the church was no different than the world. There was no distinction. No distinction. So let's look at what happened. Judges chapter 2. We'll just pick right up from where he left off. Look at what it says. It says, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and began to serve the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They fouled and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Listen, history tells us that the Canaanite people had a practice of uniting sexual immorality with idolatry. In other words, sexual immorality was part of the worship liturgy of the Canaanite people. So because of this, the Israelites were diving headlong into it. They were enjoying all the same things that the world enjoys. There was no distinction. But then look what the Lord did. Look how He began to behave. Look at this. It says, so in His anger... In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. So that whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. Do you see this? This is different than Revelation 21.8. You're standing before God in a Revelation 21.8 moment. God just takes you and says, Whoosh. But in this life, it's different. In this life, you're living in a season of grace. So God has a different approach with an idolater. He comes to them and instead of utterly destroying them, he starts by bringing affliction into their lives. He brings trial. He brings suffering. He brings turmoil. What does this look like practically? Hypothetical example. A man decides one day that he's going to give church a try. Grew up as a Roman Catholic, didn't appreciate the church too much, kind of felt it was a little too strict, didn't go for most of his life, but he's heard that church is different these days. So he decides that he's going to give it a try. He goes to church one Sunday to a church of his choosing, walks in, to his surprise, he actually enjoys the whole affair. He's shocked to discover that he really likes the music. And what's even more surprising to this man is he actually enjoys the preaching too. So he decides that he's going to bring his family back the next Sunday. He does. An altar call comes after the message. His whole family goes forward. Him, his wife, his two teenage boys, and they all get saved. And something glorious happens. Then they start to serve the church. They start to get involved in ministry at the church. They become involved in leadership at the church. They begin to give their tithe to the church. And for a season, life seems to turn around and get better. The man begins to find that he has a better relationship with his wife now. 
His teenage sons look upon him more respectfully. There's a different atmosphere in his home. But very soon, things begin to go wrong. And he wonders why. The first thing that happens is that a freak accident happens. A fire lights up in his garage. An electrical fire burns the whole thing down. In a moment, memories from Christmases going back decades are gone in an instant. He's very grieved over this. But then to make matters worse, the same week, a city sewage pipe bursts, water backs up into his basement, and more memories just get flooded away. He's depressed by all this. He goes back to church the next day. He's talking to his pastor. So he's just sharing the grief, and the pastor sees what's going on. He's grieved by this. He prays, gets a word from God, says, we're going to go to your house, and we're going to just, just march around your property and take authority in the spirit over what's going on in your life right now. So he gets together the elders. They go to the man's house. They have a prayer meeting. At night, they begin to experience a breakthrough. So they turn and they begin to encourage the man. So things are going to get better now. The man receives the encouragement. The elders leave. Only problem is it doesn't get better. It continues to get worse. Because God is trying to get his attention. So two weeks later, his car breaks down. Then his wife's car gets totaled. A couple days later, she comes home and finds, I just lost my job. He goes back to his pastor. He says, what's going on here? Explain this to me. What happened? You prayed. You said you sensed something. What's going on? Where is God in this situation? The pastor prays, just kind of backs off into his spirit, just prays, starts to get a word. He said, you know, there was a couple weeks ago, we had a message... And you came forward after the altar call. One of my elders told me that you were sitting down with your family on a once-a-week basis watching Desperate Housewives. Are you still doing that with your two teenage sons? A man said, yeah. And he says, you know, and we were also talking the other day. You had that issue with pornography. Are you still struggling with that? I mean, just I'm just trying to see what's going on here to get a kind of a feel for a diagnosis. The guy starts to get a sniff. He doesn't like this. He begins to yell at his pastor. Storms out of the office. Says, that's it. I'm taking my family. I'm taking my tithe. I'm taking my time. And we're heading out. We're going to find another place. How many of you know this happens a lot? So the guy goes down to the street to another church. This one's a lot bigger. 10,000 people in attendance. He finds he likes the worship of this place even more than the last place. And he likes the preaching better too. You know why? Because they don't talk about sin much. They just preach the positive side. That's all he hears. A couple months later, the trials seem to lift. And he thinks, ha! Huh, that pastor was wrong. This wasn't God. Only thing is he's misreading the signs. See, because it says in Proverbs 3, the Lord God, He disciplines those whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. And when there's no discipline happening in your life, the Bible says check your walk to see if you're still in the faith. So I'll tell you something. It would not be the worst thing in the world for you tonight to realize that because of the, the duplicity in your lifestyle, Oh, Lord, you told me not to say that word tonight. Because of the division in your heart, in your lifestyle, that you're no longer saved. 
even though you're claiming allegiance to Christ. That would not be the worst thing in the world to have you realize that tonight. The worst thing would be for you to hear what I'm saying, say, oh, gosh, my life really lines up pretty close with that in a lot of seasons. Wow. And then to say, oh, it's just probably a coincidence. That would be far worse. Because you know what happens to this guy eventually? Eventually he dies. And he stands before the Lord. And God says to him the words that we never want to hear the Lord say to any Christian. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. See, he had his chance because God behaves differently in this life towards idolaters than he does in eternity. In eternity, there's no more chances. In this life, you've got a season of grace and there's time to respond. There's time to repent. And while there is, God gets your attention any way he can because he's frantic to get a hold of your heart. But that's not the only thing that God does. Look what else it says he does in verse 16. Look there. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those raiders. And here is where we become tempted to rewrite the Scriptures, brothers. Because how do you relate to this picture? Right? Look what is happening here. On the one hand, God is raising up enemies to fight His people. And on the other hand, He's raising up people to save them. Actually says in Judges 3.12 that God strengthened. God strengthened the hand of Eglon, king of Moab, against His people. So how do you relate to this? How do you relate to a God who fights you with His left hand and saves you with His right? I mean, have you ever lived in a season in your life you just feel like the circumstances of your whole world are collapsing down upon you? And you feel like you're sitting under a tree, clutching a flower in your hand, picking the petals off, going, God loves me. God loves me not. God loves me. God loves me not. God is for me. God is for me not. And you're thinking to yourself, this is schizophrenic! You make no sense to me right now, God. I can't relate to you. I'll tell you something. What we need to understand is what God is really attempting to do in situations like this. He never sends, listen to me, He never sends trial and suffering into our lives for the sake of overcoming us. He never does it for that reason. Judges 3, 1 and 2 actually says that God left the nations that He left in Israel to test them so that the generations who had not previously known war might know it. In other words, He leaves those testings in your life so that you learn how to overcome the idolatry that is gripping your soul because He loves you and He's after your heart. That's why He does it. That's why He raised up judges. And the job description of the judges was to call the people back into covenant with the Lord so that they could do the thing that God had called them to do, which was to take the kingdom. Why? Because God has a calling upon the life of every Christian, say with me, to take the kingdom. Do you remember how we talked about this at the beginning of the message? And you know, all of these ideas, they're so clear in the story of Gideon. Judges chapter 6, please. 
Just turn to Judges chapter 6. I want to go to the 11th verse. This is the story of Gideon. Look at this. If you get there, say amen. All right. Listen to the story. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love this. Listen to Gideon's response. This is, this is so cynical. Listen to this. He says, Pardon me, Lord. Gideon replied, But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are his wonders that our ancestors told us about? When they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Two things I want you to notice here. Number one, Gideon is living in a generation that has not seen the power of God very much. They've not seen signs and wonders. They hear stories, but it's like, where is he? Second thing I want you to notice is that Gideon also happens to be living in a generation that has broken covenant with the Lord. Sound familiar at all? Sound a bit like America? I tell you, you know why this is strange? Because right now, the power of God is being poured out on the two-thirds world in a way that's unlike anything that we've ever seen in church history. God is visiting the nations with His glory. And at the same time, conspicuously, there's not a whole lot going on in the Spirit here in America, in case you haven't noticed. And we also happen to be walking in a lot of mixture. By the definition of idolatry, I just described to you how many people do you know that need to hear this message that are no longer saved because they're enjoying in and taking delight in all the same things that the world enjoys, or at least a good percentage of them. And they've done this for so long that they, they don't even know, they don't even spot how they're crossing the line. Some of you are crossing the line. So Gideon, he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and the very first instruction that he gets from God of how to deal with this situation is the Lord says to him, now go. I want you, Gideon, to go to your father's house, just walk right into the middle of the square, and destroy the altar to Baal that's set up there. And I want you to chop down his Asherah pole and get rid of the witchcraft. Get, just get rid of it. Lose that stuff. And then he says to him, and the very place that your father's house prostituted itself to the gods of this world, I want you to build an altar to me. And I want you to worship me. In the very place where you prostituted yourself to other gods, I want you to build an altar to me. What is he doing? He's reestablishing covenant with God. Do you see this? And then after that, and only after that, then God says to Gideon, now go, take the kingdom. I love God for this. Do you see this? He says to a person who's broken his heart, to a person who's broken covenant with him, a person who's become a prostitute 
and an adulterer. And he says, you, you now go take the kingdom. That's a picture of the mercy of God, folks. And more than the mercy of God, it's a picture of the grace of God, of the unmerited favor of God that He puts on you when you don't deserve it and sends you to do kingdom exploits that are way over your head. That's the character and heart of God. That's what He's looking to do. And you know, in all of this, do you know what Gideon gets? He gets a new name. From that point on, he's named Jerub Baal, which means he who contends with Baal. So that when all the Israelites begin to gather around him to make war with the enemies of Israel, everybody knows that this guy's got a bone to pick with idolatry. He's got a bone to pick with Baal. It's no secret. This is what God wants to do in our lives tonight. He wants to set us free. Because I'll tell you something that there have been words here that God is raising up a band of 300, which is the same number of people that Gideon ran with, if you remember. He's raising up a group of people who are going to go and take the kingdom. Why? Because covenant is the key to the kingdom. So what I... I've been sensing that the Lord wants to do is that this word is a work of preparation for the things that are coming just around the bend. God has a plan for your life to take the kingdom. And He even gives you promises. But it's not exempt from a covenant relationship with Him. Last thing I, I just felt impressed to the Spirit of God to speak to you about. Could you just look with me real quick here at Judges chapter 2 once more? Would you look at what it says here at verse 18? This is something the Lord said you are not allowed to finish this message without making this point. Judges 2.18, are you there? All right. It says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. Do you see that? Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with them? No, He was with the judge, it says. And He saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. Here's the one dangerous thing, and this is why I need to bring this up. It's because it's real, it's real simple to get underneath of the leadership of a person who is walking in covenant with God and to begin to experience a measure of your calling in the kingdom. And to begin to experience the power of God breaking out while you're not living in covenant. Because if you read on, you'll notice that as soon as the judge died, all the trouble started all over again. You can come under the covering of a leader, listen to what I'm saying, who's walking in covenant and experience a measure of the supernatural and then get a false read on where you are, even though you're not walking in covenant. So that when you're no longer under that person's leadership, you don't experience the same thing anymore. And you just think to yourself, oh, well, the Lord is mysterious in His ways. It's not so, it's not so mysterious like that. Don't read yourself on the basis of what you see happening in the life of your leader. Go to the Holy Spirit and ask Him to reveal 
where you're at so that you can get an accurate read. And then once you've done that, then you begin to go to war. Because I tell you something, the war, it, we don't take the kingdom. You don't do, I don't do supernatural things. That's not the way it works. We can't do supernatural things. God does it. We get to stand there and watch it happen and say that was God to the people that watch it. Now do you want to know him? That's what we get to do. It's not our part. The only thing we do is stand in covenant with the Lord, and then He does it. He does the work. The kingdom work is His work. We are servants, stewards. And the reason I'm bringing this up, you can get under the leadership of somebody who is walking in these things and get a false understanding of where you're at. Read the Word of God. The Bible says that the Word is a mirror, and it shows us our true self. James chapter 1. So look into the mirror and make sure that you're standing in a right way with the Lord. And then when the Holy Spirit has done His work through the Word to wash you, to cleanse you, to bring you out of that place of idolatry into a place of covenant trueness, then you're going to begin to take the kingdom. One more verse. Hebrews chapter 11. I love this. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You can just listen to it. We have here the famous Faith Hall of Fame. Verse 32, the writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Listen what it says about Gideon farther down in verse 34. Who was made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. An adulterous person who didn't deserve it. Got it. So don't let the enemy tell you tonight that because of your past or whatever it is that you've done that you're somehow disqualified because that's just not true. If you search the scriptures, you notice it's often the case. I mean, look around you. What else does he have <laughs> except people who have done this? The mercy of God is a mysterious thing. It defies human reason. It makes no sense. But he won't repent for you. Mm -mm. You've got to come to a place where you're done with this thing. You've got to cry out to God to end this thing so that you can get on with the business that God called you to do. Because the Lord is a calling upon the life of every Christian to take the kingdom. 